0: Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. Today we have two very special guests, both from the AJ Drexel Autism Institute. The first is Andrea Wykowski, and the second is Diana Robbins. Um, Dr. Robbins is actually one of the authors of the Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers, and she and Dr. Wykowski have just published. a a systematic review and meta-analysis of this instrument. The AAP requires or highly suggests, they require, but it's usually highly suggestive, that every child get screened for autism at 18 and 24 months of age. They can get reimbursed by insurance for this. They're supposed to be doing it. It doesn't always happen, but parents should always be aware that their child should be screened at 18 and 24 months. There are websites that I can list in the podcast summary that go over some sites where you can even take this, take this screening instrument yourself. It's a parent report. So parents answer the questions about their child's uh, different features. They include, does your child look at things you point at? Um, Does your child uh, play pretend play? So these sorts of questions are used commonly to be a screener for autism, not a diagnostic tool, a screener to determine who then should get a more in-depth follow-up. So again, um, I'm happy that one of the authors of the MCHAT and her colleague at the Drexel Autism Research Institute are here. I'm gonna let them introduce themselves. Dr. Wykowski, go ahead and tell everyone who you are and uh, what your role is on the project.
1: Absolutely, I'm happy to be here. Um, So I am um, Andrea Wieckowski. I'm an assistant research professor at the A.J. Drexel Autism Institute. I'm working closely with Diana Robbins um, as part of the Early Detection and Intervention Lab. Um, So our work really focuses on that, the early detection part, so um, trying to find children with autism as early as possible. and so I've been working at the Institute since 2019, and I'm really interested in this um, topic. And um, as we'll tell you about, uh, this paper um, tells us a lot about um, where we are, what we know, and where we need to go when it comes to screening for autism.
0: And Dr. Diana Robbins.
2: Hi, everyone. Um, as, as Alicia already introduced me, I am, the first author of the mchat the modified checklist for autism and toddlers Um, here at drexel university i'm a professor and also the director of the aj drexel autism institute we were the first autism research center to focus on the public health science of autism and that really uh helps shape a lot of the research questions we ask because we're interested in addressing population level questions We're interested in deep community engagement um, that, that pervades our work. And one of the things that makes us really excited about the work we do, because we're deeply embedded in the community, when we do our research, we see a much quicker uptake from research discovery to real world impact in the work that we do, not that traditional 20 year or longer pipeline that that often um, separates a a discovery in the lab, you know, from from having that real world impact. So um, we're excited to tell you about our new paper today.
0: Thank you. And I kind of already described the MCHAT, but Dr. Robbins, since you were an author, what is the MCHAT and what's it
2: what's it supposed to be doing? So the intention of the MCHAT is to be a very quick and easy um, sweep of all toddlers to identify those children who would benefit from a, a closer look by an expert. Mm-hmm. And so um, when, you, when you think about how children are identified as potentially having a concern for autism or another developmental um, issue, they go to the pediatrician or a pediatric um, primary care clinician. And those folks cannot be expert in all things. And so really, we think about the parents as being the expert in their own child's behavior. And so we adapted um, the chat, which was uh, developed in Great Britain, to better fit a a U.S. healthcare system, because the original British version had both a parent report questionnaire and a home health observation. And we didn't have anything similar to that kind of home health uh, um, visitor system for most of the population. Occasionally there are pockets of of the population here who have access to those kinds of home visits, but it's not pervasive in our uh, healthcare system. And so um, with the permission of the authors, we modified it. That's the M in M chat and, and enhanced the types of questions we asked parents about to get a very clear snapshot of their child's strengths and also potential areas of challenge. And as, as you mentioned, there's a big difference between a screener and a diagnostic tool. Screeners are, think about casting a broad net where you're just bringing in the subset of children in the population who need a closer look. You're not making decisions at that point about whether somebody has or does not have a specific diagnosis, you're just, flagging those children for, for a closer look by some experts. And that's really how, how the screening tool is designed to identify the children who might be at higher likelihood of autism.
0: That's a great explanation. And you guys didn't just stop there um, at the MCHAT. Um, one of the reasons you were able to to do this systematic review is that so many people have used it so many people have used it in different settings, but you didn't just stop at the actual M chat. There was something called the follow-up interview. So can you explain what that's about, why there is a follow-up interview and, and what the purpose is?
2: Absolutely. I can answer that one. So going back to the idea of casting a net to try to bring in the children who need a closer look. if If your goal is to identify all of the children with likely autism, or as many as you can of that subgroup, then you really have to cast your net broadly. But we know that just answering a couple quick yes-no questions will also draw in a lot of children who don't have autism. And so we we actually designed the structured follow-up from the very beginning, but we didn't articulate that as clearly in our very first preliminary results paper. And we learned a lot before our next papers came out about how people take uh, scientific output in the form of a journal article and apply it in real world settings. And so it wasn't until our our big paper in 2014 that reported on the validation of the revised version. So the MCHAT revised with follow-up where we added the F part into the name of the tool itself So that people would understand the moment they went to either the MCHAT website or pulled up one of those papers, that this was really built as a two stage screener. So the first stage narrows from 100% of the population being screened to a subset and what percentage that is really depends on the context in which the screener is being used, but it's a subset and then asking those follow-up questions further narrows the focus on the children who are most likely to have autism and that way um, parents and pediatric professionals can understand that a child um, may have that high likelihood on an initial glance but on a closer look they drop into the low likelihood classification and those children probably don't need to be seen immediately by an autism expert for an evaluation um, compared to the ones who, even after you ask some clarifying questions, get some examples of the behavior, that subset who continues to show high likelihood of autism, those are the ones who need those immediate referrals. I should say, in the very beginning, we called it the follow-up interview, but we've now actually adapted it for um, electronic administration, and so we we do just call it the structured follow-up because it could be done either in an interview with a healthcare professional or someone on a research team, or it can actually be done electronically in the same session as the parents answered the original questions.
0: You guys have made it so easy for pediatricians or healthcare providers to administer the Mchat, but they don't always do it they don't always do it the way that it's intended and we'll get to that. But the first question I had or maybe not the first, but the, the next question is why why look at a systematic review? So what what was the purpose of pulling together all the research that's been done around the Mchat?
1: Yeah, so as has already been mentioned, MCHAT is the most commonly used tool to screen for autism in the United States. And um, it's been used in different settings in different ways. There's a wide variability in the way that people are also measuring its performance and how well it does as a screening tool for autism. And therefore, people draw a conclusion about its use that may not be the most accurate. So we really wanted to systematically look at what factors are there that can impact how well the screener the MCHAT performs in terms of identifying children with autism.
0: And you use some terms that we're gonna talk about um, throughout this podcast. And so I figured it's time to maybe clarify what they are. One of them is FN for false negative, and another one is FP for false positive and sensitivity and specificity. So these are measures that some of the researchers that studied the MCHAT that are included in the systematic review used. So can you give the listeners a little sense of what those
1: terms mean? Absolutely. Yeah, so in terms of these outcomes, what we look at is MCHAT's ability to detect autism when, when autism is truly present. So this is sensitivity, ability to detect autism when it's truly there. We're also looking at MCHAT's ability to rule out autism when autism is not present. And this is specificity. And the way these two are calculated is by looking at combination of the screening outcomes. So this is a screener saying positive or negative and the diagnostic outcome, so autism or not. And it's this combination of the screening outcome and the diagnostic outcome that gives us that sensitivity and specificity. So uh, to go into some of these specifics, what we can have is true positive outcome, which means that the MCHAT result was positive. So showing high likelihood of autism and the child was diagnosed with autism. So that's a true positive case. You can have true negative where the MCHAT result was negative. So there was low likelihood of autism and the child was not diagnosed with autism. So this is a true negative case. Then we come into these false positive and false negatives. So false negative is when the MCHAT result is negative, so there is low likelihood of autism, but the child was actually diagnosed with autism after a full evaluation. So this was a false negative case. And then lastly, we have false positives, where the MCHAT result was positive, so high likelihood of autism, but after the evaluation the child was found to not have autism. And so the way we calculate sensitivity and specificity is looking at the combination of these. So sensitivity, again, is the tool's ability to detect autism when truly present. So it looks at true positive cases in relation to all autism cases. So it combines the true positives and the false negative cases. And then specificity, which is tool's ability to rule out autism when autism is not present, we calculate by taking the false positive cases in relation to all non-autism cases. So basically this is all just a combination of looking at the screening outcome and the diagnostic outcome in order to calculate these um, sensitivities and specificities.
0: Great. Right. That's, that's very, very helpful for listeners. I will ask you, you know, it's very rare for a tool like this to have 100% specificity and 100% sensitivity. So how do you balance the two, right? So how, what's, is there one that's more important? Or do you look at, you know, equal numbers of them both?
2: I mean, how do you balance this? This is a really critical issue to address and one that hopefully people are thinking of early in tool development. Because how you prioritize sensitivity versus specificity does make a difference in whether you're more likely to get a, a larger group of children classified in that false positive box or in that false negative box. And one important issue is there isn't a hard and fast right or wrong. One of these metrics is not always more important than the other. So, you know, an example is if you if you think about um, a very deadly disease where if you catch it, the person's life is saved. And if you miss it, the person dies, you will prioritize sensitivity catching it even if you find some false positives like in the mix, right? On the other hand, if the treatment is really Um, awful and has terrible side effects and you only want to apply this treatment um, if you know for sure that the person really has the disease that needs to be treated, you might value your specificity over your sensitivity. And so this is a little more clear cut in cases like cancer research. Um, But in autism, when we first set out to develop the MCHAT, we decided to prioritize sensitivity over specificity, especially with that initial set of yes, no questions. We wanted to try to catch as many children as possible, knowing that that means when you cast that broad net that you bring in some children who don't have autism. We thought the consequences of a false positive were a lot less um, problematic than the consequences of a false negative or a missed case because identifying autism is often the first step to helping families access autism-specific okay. intensive intervention. So in in, a, in the ideal world, you come up with something that's 100% perfect, but that doesn't really exist. You said it's rare, Alicia, but I think it actually doesn't exist because you would have to come up with something that was so perfect that there was never an outlier or okay. an unusual case that that presented differently. So we absolutely have prioritized sensitivity with the understanding that some families will go and get that diagnostic evaluation, even if they don't really have autism in the end. But what we found is that the vast majority of children who are positive on the MCHAT with the follow-up have some other developmental um, issue or delay that will benefit from early intervention, just a different kind of early intervention. And so the number of kids who are typically developing who are, who are false positives is very low. So there's not a lot of extra resources being diverted to children who don't need it. in, in the case of following up and making referrals for children who are positive on the MCHAT um, with, with follow-up.
0: That makes sense. I know that there has been some debate over whether too many kids who don't have autism who screen positive, not just on the m but on a number of different screening tools, whether that's clogging up the system. I happen to agree with you in that it's better to, I guess the term is better to be safe than sorry and to capture as many as possible. But I just wanted to let people know that there is that other side and that there's some fear that that will um, clog up the system, which again, we're not talking about putting every child through diagnosis, we're still talking about putting a subset of children through diagnostic.
2: Right, And actually, Andrea has a, a neat acronym to help remember the difference between specificity and sensitivity.
1: Good. This is not mine. This is taken from a paper. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's um, SPIN, meaning a highly specific test, if positive, rules in disease. So that's so the SP
2: for specificity in it rules it in, yes. if, if it's positive,
1: positive. and then snout, which is highly sensitive test, if negative, rules out disease.
0: Okay, I'm writing this down because I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it on hand. I have right. not the heard S-N that before. S N for
2: sensitivity. It's it was very clever whoever came up with it.
0: No, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it because I always get those two mixed up. So.
2: You know what, Alicia, you're in good company because (laughs) manuscripts from very senior experts in the field who accidentally mix them up a little bit. So it happens. And I will say it gets even more complex because there's also positive and negative predictive value, which we're not going into as much in the paper, but just understanding that that there are values other than these two metrics that help us understand how to utilize a tool in the real world. And it's, it's complex for a reason because humans are complex and it's not always so easy. There's no blood test or, or quick, you know, medical exam that says definitely it's autism or definitely it's not autism. It it's, it's much more complex.
0: And when I said rare, I was kind of thinking, I was kind of blumping it all in with like the medical exams for like the screeners for say, well, I guess no screener, but I was thinking about you know, a screener for a cancer, right? So even those aren't perfect, but I'm actually thinking of diagnostic tests. So screeners by nature are probably imperfect, period.
2: Right, I mean, a good medical analogy is a mammogram. Mm -hmm. So when you get to a certain age, you're supposed to go get a mammogram and they know that sometimes mammograms find something, they see something and you go and get a biopsy and it's negative, right? That's a false positive mammogram. But it was good that you got it checked out just in case a false negative is sometimes a mammogram doesn't show a lump and then suddenly somebody has the breast cancer after all and the the thing is the mammogram can't be perfect you can't be certain that because the mammogram was negative that you're cancer free certainly not forever um because things things change over time Mm -hmm. and that's actually one of the issues we're going to talk about in our um, our findings about how how far out you're looking for that autism,
0: that's a good that's a good point. Um, so actually, one of the great things that's happened is that the MCHAT has been translated and it's used worldwide. So um, if it hadn't been translated, it would only be used in English speaking countries. But in fact, it's been translated to many different languages. So this allowed, and it's been published in different languages. So this is great because you collected metrics on the use of the chat, the follow-up interview, the sensitivity and specificity, and you included about 50 studies around the world. Um, some of them were low likelihood, which is mostly toddlers, and some of them were high likelihood, which is like siblings or preemies. So some studies use the follow-up interview. Um, there were a range of ages tested and some were using different study designs. So. Can you explain, and this is the bulk of the podcast, I think, what the major findings were in terms of the differences across the 50 studies included? And just to give everyone a hint, there's 50 studies. They don't all show the exact same thing. You're talking about multiple languages. You're talking about multiple ages. You're talking about different populations. You're talking about all sorts of different things. And so by nature, I wouldn't expect them to show all the same thing. But so from you guys, um, what were some of the major findings that you discovered that maybe you expected and maybe you didn't expect?
1: Yes, so as you pointed out, there is a 50 studies with wide variability. So there's so many differences in terms of design. So I do wanna kind of highlight what some of those differences are in these studies. So one of them is even how many participants they included. So some of them, they're very small scale studies where there are less than 500 participants. This was about half of the studies. So that's important to consider compared to, you know, larger scale studies that had thousands of participants. Also language. So about half of the um, studies that we used were in English. The other half were (laughs) non-English languages also whether they use the original or the revised version of the mchat as diana mentioned in the beginning of this podcast so about 63 percent, so more than half use the original version and the rest use the revised version and then use of that structured follow-up so we saw about 59 percent of the studies that actually use that structured follow-up consistently and then Lastly, and a big important one that we were re- really excited to look at is that that's those strategies that were used to detect those false negative cases. So cases that are maybe missed by screening. So I do wanna spend a little bit of time looking at these, um, describing what these strategies are to help the listeners understand. So there are two different ways that we can really look at the false negative or the missed cases. One is concurrent method, which is where the evaluation to confirm the autism status is done within six months of screening. So in these studies, you screen and you get children to come to um, for an evaluation for autism. To detect those cases that screened negative, so low likelihood of autism, but you might have missed them, the screener might have missed them. What you can do is use an additional screener. Um, like a different screener to see if it might um, detect them, or other approaches such as asking the physicians to note any autism concerns. So those are the two main ways that you can um, they can come in still, even if they scream negative. Or you can evaluate all children, regardless of screening results. Now, of course, this is only feasible with smaller-scale studies to be able to get all children to come in and actually be... Um, uh, do a full evaluation. So these are the concurrent strategies. And the main difference here is that we're seeing a close timing between the screening and when the evaluation occurs. On the other hand, we then have perspective methods. And these studies use strategies that included evaluating screen-negative cases at a later time. So there might be more than a six-month difference between when the screening occurs and when the children were actually evaluated. And um, there was a subset of studies where actually they reviewed medical records at a much later time. So there could be screening done and then um, you review medical records to see if there's a mention of child receiving a diagnosis. So our findings are, um, before we get into the meta-analysis, is that majority of the studies, 78% use those concurrent detection methods. So the evaluation, to confirm autism took place within six months of screening, and the rest were classified as perspective approaches. Now, there was a small subset of data that were not used for meta-analysis and they were described systematically, and one factor that we looked at was screening age. So while the MCHAT was initially validated for children between 16 and 30 months, It has been used with children up to 48 months, which really allowed us to take a look at how does the MCHAT do with older children? And we found slightly better sensitivity for children younger than 30 months compared to older children. And the last factor that we kind of looked at um, systematically, not in the meta, is use of repeat screening. So AP recommends screening at 18 and 24 months, but what we found is only six out of our 51 samples reported repeat screening at both 18 and 24 months. So that's a very small number. And as we expected though, those studies that did allow us to compare the screening, we saw greatly increased sensitivity without decreasing specificity when you do repeat that screening.
2: And actually, I'll just chime in for a second. That's exciting because when the AAP came out with their recommendations back in 2006, the first recommendation was screen at 18 months. And then a group of scientists and practitioners got together and wrote a response to that and said, hey, 18 months is probably not enough. You should really consider a second time point. And so the AAP in the following year amended it to say screen at 18 and 24 months but at the time, there wasn't a lot of strong evidence that this was actually best practice. They were, they were kind of placing a bet on what they thought would be best practice. And in this systematic review, it looks like they bet right. And the repeat screening is really um, critical. And actually, Andrea has another paper out just a year or two ago that specifically looked at screening with different tools, not just MCHAT, at different ages and depending on what age the child is, that's what measure they got appropriate for their age. But she found that no matter whether they started younger than 18 months or at 18 months, a repeat screening again, a little older was critical for improving sensitivity. So that plus this systematic review really does support the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation for repeat screening at multiple ages. It's lovely when the papers come together and, and find the same thing, even though you use very different strategies to ask your research questions.
0: I think that's so exciting too, but the fact that so few studies were do, actually doing that was um, a little bit distressing, but that's another story.
2: <laughs> we'll have to do another podcast sometime about <laughs> how, how to facilitate implementing tools as they were intended while also making them broadly available without a lot of constraints because that is another balance that's very delicate and challenging.
0: It is and I'm not trying to come down on any pediatrician who's dealing with MCHAT screenings and vaccinations and um, broken arms and COVID and all the other things pediatricians and primary health care providers have to do today. I'm just hoping for longer well child visits, I guess so that so that those all these things can happen. Um, the other thing you did besides the meta besides the systematic review, sorry, was a meta-analysis, which is crassly put, you take the data from the different studies and you kind of look at it as one big group.
1: What did what did you find? Yes, yeah, so we have some exciting findings. We found that, There's a large degree of variability, of course, in terms of the performance of MCHAT to detect autism, depending on the study populations and use types. So in particular, we found stronger performance of the MCHAT when that case confirmation to find the false negative cases is concurrent, meaning that the screening and diagnostic confirmation are close in time versus perspective when there is a larger gap between the screening and the um, diagnosis. And so stronger performance with those concurrent strategies. Um, We also found stronger performance in low likelihood cases, meaning population-based samples versus high likelihood samples, such as children with older sibling with autism, for example, or preemies, as you mentioned earlier. In addition, some other factors that influence performance of the MCHAT included use of non-English translation of the tool, so better performance with non-English translations, and the size of the study sample with larger studies um, having better performance, and of course, the use of the follow-up interview or the follow-up screener. So there you would have higher performance of MCHAT. What this demonstrates is that the way the tool function is really not static, but depending on the context and the way that you use it um, really matters in terms of how well the screener performs. However, having said that, overall, the pooled sensitivity and specificity across these studies are both high. So it's... 83% for sensitivity, 94% for for specificity across all of these studies. So this really shows that MCHAT is a valid tool to use for screening for autism, especially when it's used as intended.
0: So thank you. So what I'm hearing is twice, you do it 18, do it 24, and of course you don't have to do it the day the child turns 18 months, you might, 24 months, you might, you could go ahead and go to that birthday party, but in that general range, do it both times, um, and also to clinicians out there, please use the, the follow-up interview. I mean, something is better than nothing, and I'm not saying, you know, all, all or nothing, but it is important to use that follow-up interview. Um so I just kind of pulled the two things that I, I kind of pulled out of it. What are some of the other things that you think that, pedi- that both healthcare providers and families should know about the MChat from this study?
1: Yeah, I can start us off. Um, so for screening to be effective, the protocol should really adhere to the recommended use, as you just mentioned. And any ch- child who screens positive should be referred for an evaluation so that they can start their early intervention without delay. And also if if you're a parent, if parents are listening to this, you should be aware of the value of early screening and ask about screening for autism at your child's 18 and 24 month well child checkups. I think it's important for everybody to be aware of um, just how how important early screening is or later outcomes.
2: And I'll echo what Andrea just said. I think, you know, speaking to the parents first, trust your gut. If your pediatric clinician isn't inclined to do the screening or um, they say, I'm not really worried, let's wait and see, and you are concerned, you know, trust that instinct and advocate for your child to go see one of those experts. I also think that it's crucial. You know, we were just highlighting the 18 and 24 month age span, but one of the things that looking especially at those prospective confirmation studies has told us is it is probably impossible for any tool at 18 and 24 months to capture all autism. Autism is a neurodevelopmental condition and it emerges gradually and it emerges differently in different children. And so just because you get the all clear at 18 and 24 months doesn't mean that you should be certain that autism couldn't emerge later on. There may be subtle warning signs that are just difficult to detect when they're that young, there may be other contextual factors like maybe pandemics that make it harder to identify which children um, really might be developing along an autism trajectory. And so even among older children, I would say to both parents and professionals, if something makes you worried about whether a child um, is really showing their best potential, whether their needs are being met, whether it's through healthcare or through education or through social engagement with their peers, act on it at any age. And it It could be beneficial and and one tool can't be the the one and only thing you rely on and so so folks should absolutely act on a positive screen and have have their child looked at but they should also act even if the screener is negative and there are concerns either while they're still toddlers or as they get older and the social demands Um, increase, you know, as as they're aging and getting more sophisticated with their peers.
0: I couldn't have said that better myself. Um, One of the things to realize also is that when you have greater sensitivity, you may also be pulling in non-autism, but things like language delay and developmental challenges, which also need to be identified early. Um, and dealt with early so that the child has the best possible outcome. So it doesn't always mean autism. It could mean other things. And those are important too. So the website that I'll go ahead and put a plug in for the website, it's called mchatscreen.com. And you can go in, you can take the mchat. And if you have a child who's around 18 or 24 months of age, sometimes it's a good idea to do that. And then just put it in front of your your primary care provider and say, listen, we need to talk about this. This is the report. So um, is there anything about this I missed or something you want to share with the audience about the study that we didn't get to touch on?
2: I think you covered quite a lot of ground in a a pretty short podcast. (laughs) You guys did.
0: You covered all the ground. So I want to thank you both and invite you to be on another podcast and we talk about different tools um, and how, you know, making sure everybody uses them and accepting that people aren't going to use them perfectly is a is a balance that we kind of need to, to reach. So thank you Absolutely. both. And uh, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to the latest and greatest on the m Thank,
1: thank you, so you very much.